Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Russell Hargrave, Senior News Reporter. And I'm Lucinda Rouse, Senior Multimedia Reporter at Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. And this week, we are going to be talking about gift aid, a way in which the tax system and donors and charities all interact to try and get billions of pounds more into people's pockets to spend on good causes each year. But before we go into that, Russ, I think we need to have a chat about the big story of this week. Which story do you mean, Lucinda? Which one? I mean the Care for Calais story. Mm, I thought you did. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? We were talking about this earlier. Third sector. Sometimes we like to think we're going to write a story and it'll get a bit of public attention in the national newspapers. And the truth is, very often it doesn't. I might think that a news story is the best thing since sliced bread, and our readers might, but actually that's as far as it goes. But this week we wrote about Care for Calais a refugee charity which operates in the northern bits of Europe and the refugee camps there, and some problems that that charity has had. Um, And it has had lots of national media attention. And we approach the stories a little bit differently, I think, sometimes. So just give us a rundown what's been reported. So Third Sector had seen a whole series of complaints against Care for Calais, which were made in the period 2017 to 2020. And the reason that's important is it leads up to the period where the Charity Commission in the middle of 2020 first got in touch with the charity and said, look, we've got some concerns about how the charity is being run. Those concerns have been escalated to a statutory inquiry, the highest level of inquiry that a commission can open. So the context here is that this is a charity that is being investigated. The regulator is clearly worried. And the story we wrote about the documents that Third Sector had seen showed that there had been a bit of a pattern in the years leading up to that, on two fronts really. One was about the way in which the charity was organised on the ground, lots of unhappy volunteers, people who were concerned about um, not being able to help the charity in the way they wanted, and, and there'd clearly been quite a lot of antagonism there. But also about an individual, Claire Mosley, who founded the charity, very involved, no question incredible commitment to the cause, but some quite serious allegations about behaviour that she'd admitted to, we knew from the documents. So for example, that she had verbally threatened a volunteer, something she'd had to apologise for, and that she'd carried pepper spray when she was in Belgium. In Belgium, it's illegal to carry pepper spray at at any time. Um, And she stopped doing so only after people complained about it. Hadn't she used it against a refugee? So yes, it, it emerged partly from our reporting and partly from it being picked up by some of the national newspapers that there was an altercation uh, where it should be said in, in self-defence. We Again, we've seen documents that make clear that to lots of the witnesses there, this was in self-defence, but that she had used the pepper spray in an altercation in a refugee camp during a distribution. Again, even carrying it in the country at the time was against the law. And this was one of the things that we reported as well. Um, Claire Mosley left the charity this week. I should make it clear, again, partly the reporting that went on in the national newspapers this week, um, Third Sector put its questions to Care for Calais, but after Claire had put in her uh, request to leave the organisation, the trustees approved that resignation request after our questions had gone in. So that was the timeline. Hmm. So, impact. Yeah, a little bit. And for stories like this, some of it is just the sort of nuts and bolts of classic third sector reporting. We knew there were safeguarding issues at this charity because we'd seen the documents. We knew that complaints had been made and some of them had been you know, acknowledged to to be exactly as the complainant had, had put forth. They were serious enough to merit some serious attention and research from us that, that led to the, to the story. And also there's an ongoing statutory inquiry from the Charity Commission. And that always tells you it's not just journalists who are looking at this, it's regulators taking it very seriously indeed. So in some ways it was a, 
you know, the same sort of story that we would write week in, week out about a charity that's getting some investigations and some questions from the people who matter. So why is this an important story for the sector and therefore for us as a trade publication for the voluntary sector? And how does third sector, and by third sector I mean you as the mm-hmm, person mm-hmm. who investigated this and wrote it, how do you approach it differently to, for example, the mainstream media? Yeah, so I think if you look at the coverage, so there was um, stuff in the Telegraph, the Times, the Mail, LBC all followed up on this um, a few days later. National coverage naturally gravitates towards partly the most sort of extraordinary findings, um, the the allegations of uh, threatening volunteers especially. And that's not surprising. It's what we should expect, really. This is for a national non-expert audience of people who maybe have heard of the charity, maybe haven't, Mm. but need to find a really quick way to understand how things have gone wrong. Of course, again, we reported it partly through the lens of a commission investigation because our readership is a specialist charity audience who, who understand that process and are engaging with us because they already know it. Listen, I used to work in the refugee sector, and one thing I wanted to make sure we got right with this story was the context as well about how hard it is to work in those environments. So we had the chance to talk to a couple of experts, both of whom told me, look, there is no excuse for some of the allegations here, no excuse for misbehaviour. But also, if you go to these camps, which both of these people had, it's hard. The environment is tough. The people are often very distressed. The need is very, very high. And so I wanted to make sure those voices were in there as well, because it gives a context for how these charities were operating. I'd give this context too. There are lots of charities that operate in those camps that don't get charity commission investigations, that don't have complaints like this against them, not this level of complaints. And of course, it's important to point out from their point of view that something had gone badly wrong at Care for Calais. There's a new chief executive in there now. There's been lots of reforms since the period of the complaints that we covered. And they're pretty robust about saying, you know, we're working really hard with the commission. We're going to get this right. And that is ultimately the best outcome for all of us. So context is key, but can sometimes remove some of the sensationalism, which gets these stories to the top of the agenda of the national media. A little bit. And of course, our job as the trade press is to juggle those two things, write stories that are really engaging and important and uh, and accurate above all. Um, And that accuracy means sometimes getting lots of voices in there to really explain what's going on. So our main feature this week is looking at gift aid. A few months ago, we had Gus O'Donnell on the podcast. He estimated that getting people who decide not to tick the gift aid box when they donate to Ticket could earn an extra £380 million for charities. That's on top of the £1.3 billion that is already claimed. He called for a number of things to make that happen, not least amongst them digital innovation. And joining us to delve deeper into the issue this week is Neil Heslop, Chief Executive of the Charities Aid Foundation, or CAF Group. He previously worked as Chief Executive of Leonard Cheshire, a role that he took up after 25 years in business and more specifically the telecoms industry. Hello, Neil. Good morning, Lucinda. Nice to be here. Well, thank you very much for joining us. So gift aid was originally introduced in 1990. And it seems to be a system that is not working as it should. Can we start just by talking about why more people, both charities and donors, don't use gift aid to the best of its ability? Yeah, well, I think it's probably helpful just to position the origins of gift aid with a little bit of context. So back in the middle 80s, Charities Aid Foundation and a number of others in the sector we're really looking at how 
significant increases in income for charities could be generated. And they identified the tax system as, a, as an opportunity to really give some incentives. One thing led to another, and the existing gift aid system was sort of introduced, as you say, in the 1990s. And it is ostensibly built around the process and the systems back in the 1990s. So it's pretty manual. It's pretty pen and paper. And I guess when you think about some of the things that Gus was talking about, better part of 40 years on, all of our lives and society more generally are just fundamentally different. And therefore, there is a need to really take a hard look at how do we modernise and digitise gift aid so that the lost pounds, that £380 million that Gus highlighted, actually makes its way, as intended by all parties, all the way to charities to do good work. If you think about gift aid, there are really three different communities who need to all come together to make the system work really smoothly and efficiently. So there's donors in terms of their behaviour and what they do. There are charities in terms of their administration and record keeping in order to take advantage of what donors have done. And then, of course, you've got HMRC in terms of the government agency helping the whole system work. I think all three of those different communities need to do their part and it needs to work efficiently and effectively. And I think the practical reality is that there are different challenges either for donors or for charities or for HMRC themselves that all need to be thought about discreetly and then addressed in order to make the overall system work much more appropriately in a digital world. And you mentioned HMRC there. I mean, how engaged is government on this stuff when CAF wants to talk about this at the highest levels? Is the door open to you lot? Yeah, I think it's a a mixed picture, to be honest, Russell. I think Mm -hmm. one of the things that I've been actually quite encouraged by is that in the run-up to the recent consultation that HMRC announced at the end of April, we've been working with the Charity Tax Group and Charity Finance Group for quite some time, seeking to advocate for them to really take a good look at this. And we've done all the normal kinds of things like lobbying and working with backbenchers to ask questions at select committees and so forth. That work by us and by many others has obviously had an effect. And I was pleased to find out that the consultation was actually ministerially requested. So that suggests to me that there is an understanding that this is important and it's important for the government to get right. And do you guys have an idea of what the next big step is? I know there's an ongoing process of consultation at government. How's that looking? Is, is CAF responding to that? Yeah, very much so. I mean, the first thing to say is, you know, we're, we're relatively early into that. I think, I think it was the 27th of April that the consultation came out. So first few weeks, I think in some of our teams spending time with the officials working through the detail, they were at a pretty early stage. I think what is encouraging, however, is that, that there seems to be a real desire to properly look at it and reform the barriers that are just getting in the way of introducing the kind of friction such that £380 million that Gus mentioned goes unclaimed. Charities could do an awful lot of good without £380 million. And that's, you know, that's an annual number. And I think the sooner we get a, a modernised, appropriate digital way of administering gift aid, the better.
you were saying when we were chatting earlier that it's still a bit of a sort of a pencil and paper operation <laughs> at a digital time. Um, do you mind saying a bit more about how it might be digitally made more accessible and any other barriers that, that need to be overcome? 6% of all giving is tax-based these days. That's an obvious area that is crying out for a development. And my 25 years in the telecom business makes me absolutely believe that with the right thinking and the right process design, there can be some significant innovation, certainly in that area. But what I think, as well as just talking about the specifics around the choices for reform and improvement, and I, I would encourage everyone to get involved in that consultation, Far too many charities, particularly small and medium-sized charities, don't get any benefit from gift aid at all because they're just not set up for it. And I think that there are, there are significant amounts of money being left on the table. But I think this isn't going to be something where there's one magic, whizzy digital solution. I think we need to work very, very hard at donor education I think we need to work very hard at the simplifying and digitizing the the journey through the system. And I think at the end of that, there is some some real prospects of a lot more money making the way through the system. But I think, you know, we're talking about gift aid, but I think it's really important to put this in a wider context. Given some of the, the social and political and economic challenges that we're all wrestling with, what's massively important is that we in the sector are able to really respond to those consistent challenges that everyone has of falling income, increased costs and rising demands. We've got to, as a society, really rebuild a culture of giving right across society over over the next number of years. It's amazing how much generosity there is But certainly all of my research suggests that, like so many aspects of modern life, things are becoming really quite polarised. Smaller proportions of our population are giving. And I think we need to really ignite a reversal in that trend. And reforms like gift aid and other reforms are really important in order to support and enable that. Yeah, I mean, as we mentioned earlier, this is nothing new and there have been shortcomings in the whole gift aid system for about as long as it's been going. Why do you think that previous gift aid reforms haven't made progress? I'm not sure I know know enough about them to be really confident about that, Lucinda. I, I go back to those three communities. In order for this system to work, You need it to work for donors, you need it to work for charities, and you need it to work for governments. I think that those are three very different lenses, and you've probably got to look at each of them discreetly and knock over the barriers for each, because they're probably very, very different. One's from a charity point of view. It's very much about back-end administration and record-keeping and much more analogous to accounting than, than anything else. At the front end, for donors, it's how in the modern world do you make the intervention that you need donors to take as really quick and easy and painless and straightforward as it's humanly possible to be? And then from a government lens from HMRC, how do you design that tax process, that administration process in such a way that it puts the customer journey 
at the heart of that, and it uses modern technology to redesign the process in such a way that it takes cost out for government, it takes grief out for donors, and it takes time out for charities. And you mentioned also the changing donor habits, changing trends, different generations are giving money in different ways, Mm. much more smaller amounts, piecemeal seems to be a trend in people in their 20s. Bearing in mind these changing giving habits, how can innovation and gift aid be brought up to speed to essentially maximize how much charities are getting from the scheme? Well, you know, if you think about every aspect of our lives, pretty much every interaction that any of us have is being digitized, isn't it? Just the way we live our lives, the way that we undertake our online shopping, the way that we do our tax returns, pretty much everything is being digitized. And as a side effect of that digitization, sometimes subtle and sometimes not so subtle, fundamental behavioral shifts are taking place. I think what we need to do is to make sure that gift aid is not left behind with all of those trends, because in essence, you know, this is something that's got the potential to be putting, you know, the better part of two billion pounds a year into the system. You know, we, we glibly just say two billion quid. I mean, that's that's a lot of noughts. And this is something that all of these parties want to do. I've never met a donor who, when it was quick and easy and straightforward, said, oh, yeah, that's cool. I'd really like to do that. Of course, why wouldn't I do that? You know, if I'm going to give you £10, why wouldn't I want to add another £2.50 to that? You know, so donors really, really want it when it's quick and easy and straightforward. Charities desperately want it. And to be fair to the government, I think that it is far more important for that tax relief that's already been argued about. It's been given, but they're not seeing the full benefit of it translating into how donors feel about the tax system, how charities feel, and most importantly, how much cash is then making its way to fund the critical community-centric work that we all want to see. And you mentioned the sort of the three classes, as it were, donors, charities and HMRC, but CAF, big enough, influential enough to almost have a hand in all three of those. Is there stuff that you can do using your clout and size to move the dial that that maybe other charities can't? Is there a unique role for you? Clout and size, I'm always a bit nervous when people say stuff like that, Russ. Um, (laughs) um, But, you know, we are a large foundation, probably one of the largest in the UK. And that brings forward the opportunity to engage with those three communities. And we see ourselves very much in our role. The the clue's in the name. You know, we're a foundation that's there to aid charities. We're very clear about our purpose in that we want to accelerate progress in society towards a fair and sustainable future for all. Well, some of that progress in society is about reforming and making gift aid more impactful for more charities more often. I think the way that we express our purpose, we talk about really facing into those three communities. So for donors, we seek to partner with donors to help them realise greater impact from the giving. One aspect of that is with those who work with us is to support them to understand gift aid and the potential for them to take care of their tax arrangements in such a way that they realise greater impact from the giving. 
when it comes to charities, we see ourselves being there to try and enable charities to do more of their life-changing work with lasting benefits for all of us. And we do that in a whole variety of ways through the charity services that we offer, be they charity financial services through CAF Bank or CAF Financial Solutions or support for fundraising through things like CAF Donate. So everything that we're about is we're seeking to enable charities to do more of their work by help connect them to more money and to support them to use the money really well. And then thirdly, that which is very much our influencing agenda and our policy making activity, what we talk about is seeking to collaborate cross sector and borders so that we can try to inspire the kind of innovation so that civil society as a whole can thrive. And I guess in our advocacy work with HMRC, with regard to gift aid, that's an example of what it is we're trying to do. But to your point, Ross, we as an organisation are constantly saying, given some of the extraordinary challenges that there are out there in society, how can we do more? How can we contribute, play our part, whether it's with donors, whether it's with charities or, or whether it's through influencing, in order that more money comes through to the sector and therefore that more work can be done. And do you have any recommendations on how charities and voluntary organisations can respond to the current HMRC consultation? Well, I would encourage people to get involved with it. I think so much of the task of people redesigning processes, you need the practical insights the problems that you're trying to solve, be they from donors or from charities themselves, to be front and centre with those officials as they try and come up with solutions. Obviously, people can do that through the consultation directly if they feel able to do so. I mentioned earlier our colleagues in the, the charity tax group, charity finance group, through us. So I think there are lots of ways, and, and I, in talking to people in government and officials, I think there is a genuine desire to listen, figure out how to make a real difference. Then the challenge is to then go and hold people to account for the real reform that translates into more money moving through the system more consistently so that it can be turned into impact by all of the charities that benefit from it. That's so interesting. And CAF does so much broader work looking at sort of the state of giving and the nature of philanthropy at the moment. Where do you see all of this fit into the sort of the bigger picture? We mentioned sort of demographic change, one generation of people who give in a certain way being replaced by a younger generation who give in a very different way. What's your sort of general CAF's outlook on the future? I guess in this conversation, we talked at a micro level about three perspectives, mm. about donors, about charities and, and about HMRC. If you kick that up a level into a, a broader economic sense, that's pretty much how we think about the private for-profit sector, which is accounting for whatever it is, 50 to 60 percent of the economy. Public services being another 30 to 40% of the economy, and we in the, in the third sector are accounting for 10% of the economy. So, you know, you mentioned Gus and some of the great work that pro bono economics have done. Well, one of the key recurrent themes in some of their work and some of the collaborative work that we've done with pro bono economics is about how do you change the dial such that the public, private, and third sectors are responding in a more mutually reinforcing way 
to the political and social challenges that, and economic challenges that we've all got. You know, one of the things that I always think is profoundly important for the private and public sectors to properly understand is that the third sector is 10% of the economy. It's 200,000 organisations. It's a million people working in it. It's accounting for you know, a couple of hundred billion of activity. The role in, in the economy and in all of our communities of the third sector in partnership with the public and private sectors is pretty profound, given the nature of some of the challenges that we all have. Absolutely. And on a more practical level, do you have any tips for charity managers who are looking to make better use of gift aid in its current slightly flawed form? I think just get informed. I mean, the first thing is to get comfortable with it, to invest the time and effort to properly understand the system today. And time and effort, commodity in very, very short supply these days. Everyone's incredibly busy. And this can feel a slightly a slightly esoteric, a slightly arcane sort of subject. But I would really encourage people to get conversant with it because I think when you get comfortable with it, there are very few fast ways to increase your income by 25% in my experience of working in charity. And this is one of them. Mm. So get informed. Get informed and grab your, grab your extra quarter. It's all there for you. If you've worked really, really hard on getting, it, getting in 100 quid, why on earth would you leave 25 quid left on the table? Precisely. And I'm less sceptical, I think, than Lucinda overall about the, the, the system and how it works. But it is extraordinary that it's been set up for the sector. And yet, Neil, I'm sorry to say this, you've been doing this even longer than I have, but I've been writing about charities for a decade or so. And th- this has always been a very live debate about how to get more charities engaged, how to get donors more aware of it. And if this latest push gets us anywhere, it's more money for more impact, which is what you mentioned earlier. You know, on a scale of, of zero to 100, it's going to be more than zero. Our challenge is to make it closer to 100, isn't it? And I didn't know until I joined CAF coming up three years ago that the origins of Gift Aid went back to the the mid-80s. Actually, in CAF, a group of people that were brought together from different parts of society that then ultimately led to a working group, which ultimately led to a a proposal, which led to legislation. I mean, that's, that's amazing. It's imperfect. But last year, 1.3 billion quid made its way out there to do good stuff as a result of that. If we can turn that into that 2 billion quid in the existing system and then reinvent it in such a way that that contributes to a much, much more broadly spread culture of giving right across our population, 2 billion, 3 billion, 4 billion in the next 10, 20, 34 years, why not? Sounds like a very optimistic note to be ending on. Neil Heslop, Chief Executive of the Charities Aid Foundation, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed that discussion with Neil, and I acknowledge that I may have been a little bit sceptical and uh, overly critical of the system, as he said, over one3 billion pounds has been raised for charities through this scheme in the past year there is potential to get another 380 million plus and it seems like it's very simple you know it's a case of getting people to tick that box Mm. but the question really is why is it not happening if it's so easy 
it's not just a case of charity managers being lazy and not compelling people to, no. to tick that box. No, um, and I think Neil really hit the nail on the head there a little bit. As he said, you've got a system that is largely designed with, you know, pen and paper in mind, physically ticking a box and putting your letter in an envelope and storing it somewhere. Our entire lives are digital now. That's how we date. That's how we travel around the place. That's how we buy tickets for stuff. It's going to be about how we donate money as well. That's only going to grow. And as he said, in some ways, it's sort of a bit of an arcane chat about tax and how to process things. Two billion quid. That's what's on the table. Are we going to snatch it or not? And of course, it's CAF's role and others in the sector to make sure that that does happen to the best of the sector's abilities. Um, so I thought he was really interesting on that. I'm also, I mean, I could talk to Neil all day because I just think he's a fascinating commentator. But that question about sort of soft power is really interesting to me. What can CAF do that nobody else can? And he was very modest about that. And he said, well, maybe we shouldn't talk about clout and size and all those things, which I understand. But when those guys are sort of putting their shoulder to the wheel for an issue like this, there's always a great chance of success, I think, because they've got those resources, they've got that expertise, they've got those figureheads who are going to move it along. So um, I came away really encouraged. Uh, what did you make of it, Lucinda? Yeah, I felt quite optimistic by the end. Did you? You didn't start optimistic, so we, you were won over. Well, I'm very hopeful. Well, that's it for this week. Next week, Andy and I will be joined by Craig Bennett, the Chief Executive of the Wildlife Trust's Plus, we will be venturing to the Chelsea Flower Show. So please subscribe to the Third Sector Podcast to be the first to know about it. You can subscribe on your favourite podcast app. And you can also go to our website where you can download all of the previous apps and read the transcripts. So for now, that just leaves us to thank our guest Neil Heslop and of course our producer, Nav Powell. Join us again next week. 